Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast episode as we talk with Bob Yeager, president at the Partners for Sacred Places. The Partners for Sacred Places, founded in 1989, is the only national, non-sectarian, nonprofit organization focused on building the capacity of congregations of historic sacred places to better serve their communities as anchor institutions, nurturing transformation, and shaping vibrant, creative communities. We'll talk with Bob about his background, how the group got its start, and the challenges facing historic congregations and church buildings, and all that and more on this week's episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and we're excited to be having this conversation. It's one we probably should have had a long time ago, um, and we're excited to be bringing it to our audience. We're talking with Bob Yeager, the president at the Partners for Sacred Places, and we're going to be talking all about the amazing work that they do, their national fund, uh, and the creation of this really critically important organization um, and what it could mean for listeners uh, who have a, uh, a sacred place in their backyard and they want to know how to help it. Um, there is just a wealth of resources associated with this organization. But before we get there, um, we love, as, as our listeners know, to get to know the people that we're talking to. So, Bob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up uh, and how did you get the bug for preservation and where did this idea all come from? We'll, we'll kind of dive into the organization a little bit, but uh, tell us about yourself. Well, Nick, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I am a Michigander. There really is such a word. People from Michigan call themselves Michiganders. So I grew up in suburban Detroit uh, in the in the 50s and 60s. That'll give you a sense of my age. And, uh, you know, my my first step when I went, went to get into uh, college and education was going into business administration. But uh, after my getting after getting my undergraduate degree, my mother passed quite. So I was quite young. I was what? um 21 and i went on to get my mba at the university of michigan and it was a pretty awful time for me and i think i was looking for new things to energize me and to focus on and get excited about so of all things on a saturday afternoon in ann arbor michigan when i'm getting my degree in 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 in, in uh, business uh not the arts not preservation not architecture um, I walked into the church that I attended, uh, and it was dark because it was not Sunday and I had my camera with me and I, it just struck me that the stained glass in the sanctuary was just gorgeous. And it just hit me for the first time. This was a 1920s Gothic revival building. And uh, I started to take photographs and I don't know, I got hit bit by some bug. And for the next several months, I would take my camera and go from church to church uh, in Ann Arbor. And Ann Arbor is a pretty sophisticated city with a, a lot of old uh, sacred places. And I would take uh, photographs of their windows and amass this enormous collection of slides, which still sits in storage, by the way, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of slides. Sounds like a good uh, di digitization project for an intern someday. Exactly. I need to turn <laughs> it over to someone. 
But what but what really led me on this path is um, in the Episcopal Church in Ann Arbor, I encountered a window unlike any other I'd seen. And it turned out to be a window by Louis Comfort Tiffany, the famous Tiffany's, of course, who uh, Louis Comfort Tiffany um, made all those gorgeous stained glass lamps. But it, really, his largest body of work were uh, stained glass windows for churches and synagogues. And um, it's opalescent glass. It's a very different kind of glass. It's almost like a painting in glass. And, and that's what led me on another path, which is to discover more about Tiffany's work. This was in the late 70s when Tiffany was not widely known and and his work was not as va- nearly as valuable as it is today. So I took some digging and I found a list of all the windows he did that he published in 1910. And that became my map. That became my kind of lodestar. This is, I need, if I'm traveling and I, and I would uh, indicate all the churches I should visit uh, on the route and I would stop by and knock on the door and say, can I come in to look at your windows? And they would give me a look like, well, who are you? But they in- invariably would let me in and I would start taking photographs and I just really fell in love with this. So after graduating with my MBA and working at IBM for three years, um, this passion for these older buildings um, just grew and grew. And I joined the board of the Westchester County Preservation League, just north of New York City. Um, and after three years, I said, you know what? I need to make this my life. So I went to get my degree at Cornell and have been in the field since 1984. But it really started on that Saturday afternoon, going from church to church, taking pictures of windows. So we're going to fast forward to the organization. And normally I wouldn't ask someone ab- about this on a preserve cast. But since you're, you're you, the 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 focus of the, the conversation is about churches and you, you know, you mentioned that you were attended a church. Do you in, in any way feel like this was like a calling? Yeah, I do. I don't necessarily put it in religious terms because I really want to respect that people come at it from different directions. Sure. You know, Faith based or not. But I do feel in a way that I was called or that I, or maybe another way to put it, it was meant to be yeah, it was yeah, meant yeah. to be that I got pulled into this because, you know, I've been doing this now for 40 years. I still love it. I think this work is more essential than ever. Um, the passion is still there. I just feel really blessed to use another kind of religious word. I feel blessed that I found a chance to do this. You know, my, my first work in Philadelphia was with the Philadelphia Historic Preservation Corporation doing facade easements. So it had nothing to do with sacred places. Right. My boss gave me a chance to explore the idea of developing a program to serve sacred places. And I found a funder, the William Penn Foundation, that agreed to support it. So, you know, I I, I think I was looking for an opportunity to really do this for a living, to do this, make this my life. And I think just the right pieces were in place. You know, it just, everything kind of fell together in 1984, 85, 86. So I was doing easements for really only a couple of years. And then there was the funding to work locally. So my first job working with sacred places was in the Philadelphia area for about three or four years. And, and then what led to partners is people like me around the country were beginning to meet and talk and compare notes um, a lot of us met uh, at the annual National Trust Conference when they used to have affinity groups. I don't know if they really have those anymore, but that all of us who had an affinity for religious buildings would meet once a year. And I think we all agreed there needed to be a national 
resource place, a national voice. And that's what Partners for Sacred Places became. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you kind of you 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 gave us a little precursor there to how it all kind of came together. So it's an offshoot of your work doing easements and then kind of realizing, well, maybe I can kind of try this out. There's a local funder, which for any funders listening, think about the uh, catalytic impact of a small uh, initial grant, because if William Penn hadn't stepped up, we probably who knows, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation because they kind of gave you the runway to do this. That's right. What is, you know, it's it's so challenging. It's almost like, and this is going to sound strange, but it's almost like disaster work where sometimes you're like, when you respond, and I've, I've had to do this, when you respond to a disaster, you're like, how am I possibly going to make a dent? And, and the, the, the need is so profound. How right. could one little organization make a dent? The need is so profound, you know, particularly like, like we'll go back to like 1984, 85, 86. The need is so big and it's the small little thing how do you initially kind of think, okay, we're going to make a difference and how are we going to make a difference? What are we going to do that makes a difference? What's the initial thought process? Great question. And, and that, the, the seeming impossibility of the task is even more apparent now than it was back then. Mm-hmm. And we are young and, and ambitious and raring to go. Um, but I think the first thing we realized we had to be a connector because there were a lot of people, whether you're a member of a church or a synagogue or a mosque uh, or you're a local preservationist or you're a mayor or you're a local funder, you know, um, and you're realizing, hey, these places are going through changes or they may be endangered or they're underused. Um, so how do we bring people together? I think that was the first task because there was no national resource center. There was no national network place. There, there had been one conference. So just before Partners was founded in 89, there was the first Sacred Trust Conference. So we hosted that in Philadelphia. And by the way, we had another Sacred Trust Conference in Baltimore uh, shortly thereafter. We 400 people, which is pretty astonishing for a brand new cause, 400 people came together for three days. Um, that was a hint, I think, that there was a hunger to come together and learn and to and to meet each other and learn from each other but i think that was one of our first tasks when partners was actually founded in 89 was to lift this up to make this cause apparent and to say you know there are solutions or at least there are resources there are uh new ways to i often say to manage your building better to fund your building differently to use your spaces differently you know, uh, and also to connect to your community in new ways. I think that was an early learning. Mm-hmm. But but again, to we, we had to start making this cause known, uh, starting from scratch. And even now, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of sacred places across the country. So it's always a task for us um, to reach denominational leaders, people in government, uh, people in the arts, people in philanthropy, and of course, preservation and architecture. So, because it, it, you're, you're right, it's enormous. And I think we had to say, you know what, we can't save every place, we can't touch every place, but can we share best practices? Can we show the way? So, and as the word spreads, encourage other congregations and other preservationists to, to see, you know, we, we don't have to be despairing. You know, there are ways, we have right. to be creative. You know, we have to think differently, but there are ways to save these places. 
So, you know, I think everyone who comes to your organization or, or, or you know, uh, engages the organization probably sees different things that are of value to them. I always kind of come to, you, you mentioned it, sort of imagining or reimagining how spaces can be used. I always feel like that's a really valuable piece or how congregations can relate to their communities. That's a lot where, you know, if a congregation comes to us and says, well, we're, we've hit really hard times, we don't know what to do. A lot of times I'll, I'll refer them to you and to the resources that you have just to start thinking about different ways of using space. Um, but that's like one aspect of what you do. So for people listening, I mean, you kind of danced around it in different ways, but you know, are there different buckets in which you describe how you do the work and what it is? So if someone listening is saying, oh, we've got this church in our backyard and it's falling apart and the congregation is down to 12 people, what kind of resources would be available? What, you know, how, how do they engage with partners? Well, we can consult with any given congregation. Uh, we, we can talk to groups like Preservation Maryland or the Maryland Historical Trust and develop larger programs that, that reach multiple uh, sacred places. Uh, but if a church like that were to come to us, we would, uh, one, one of the fundamentals that we would talk about is that you can't do this alone which is maybe stating the obvious to, to the listeners. But for a small church, it's got, you know, was 200 people and it's down to 30 people. And they're very discouraged and they commute from 10 miles away and they're no longer in that neighborhood and the space is empty much of the time. Um, it isn't so obvious that they, they can't, they've got to find a new way to manage all this. And so finding some means to invite the community in and one of the fundamental tools we now use, by the way, is we call it, it's kind of a community engagement tool where we'll, we'll work with a church that may be quite small and we'll say, can we help you just do something really simple? Like, you know, pick the, somebody from the mayor's office and somebody from the county arts agency and a neighborhood association and a social service group and maybe the local health clinic, you know, have them in um, to your church on a Friday morning for breakfast, just for an hour. That's all. Just have coffee and walk them around the building, and then sit down and talk about what they saw. And one of the, and we've seen this again and again, by the way, with lots of small churches, it's astonishing what can happen, because those folks who may not have been in that church ever, or if they've been there, it's been 20 years, they can bring a fresh and exciting new point of view on how that space might be shared, or who might be interested in, in sharing that space, or who might be interested in collaborating with that congregation which can open up all kinds of possibilities. It can bring new people to the building. It can bring new funding to the building. It's ways to invest in the building. And, and the congregation can begin to realize, you know, there are a lot of people who care. And, and this place doesn't need to be empty from Monday to Saturday or Sunday, to you know, depending on the tradition. Um, and so if, finding ways to help that congregation reconnect and feel that energy from others who come in and say, oh my goodness, you have amazing space and we love what you're trying to do. And the fact that you've invited us in, this, that's powerful and we'd like to help you. I think it's so, it's so interesting because I, one of the things that I think a lot of preservationists find in their work and, and you're kind of giving voice to it right here is that I think a lot of times an organization, whether it be a church or you know whatever, whatever kind of structure it is or whatever thing they're stewarding, the initial thought is, well, we need a million dollars to fix this thing. And if we just had the million dollars, everything would be okay. And I think like nine times out of 10, the reality is 
the money will follow a good plan or a good use. Mm-hmm. But but coming up with the good use and the good plan actually sometimes is more challenging and more important than the money. And people don't want to hear that because they want to fix the thing. And that's right. good. The inclination is to fix the thing. But I think it's so interesting. And and, and I guess uh, it, it makes me feel good to hear you say it as well, because I've run into this so many different times where it's like if we can come up with the right plan and engage the right people, you can change it. And that seems very simple and I think the other piece of this, too, is for people listening is, you know, you don't have to boil the ocean. You can do what you just described, where it's get some people into a room and have coffee and donuts and just have a conversation and see where that goes. And that's very different than launching a seven figure capital campaign. And if you if you launch that campaign, which in some ways a campaign is easier than what we're talking about, which is, you know, hey, man, identify some of the right people and begin a conversation and take that path to sharing your building in new ways. Because if you raise that half a million dollars or a million, um, and if you don't change the fundamentals, you're going to be in the same, you're going to have the same problem in five or 10 years. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of planning, I've mentioned, I'm glad you've mentioned that because another fundamental thing we say to congregations is you should have a relationship with an architect, small or large. We really believe in that, that an architect can obviously help you do assessment of your building and understand what your priority should be and what it will cost. But that's a relationship you can turn to again and again. These are folks, they're not gaining from the, they're not unlike a contractor, they're not being paid for the work. They're like your doctor, you know, and, and, and we're talking to preservation folks. So we all know this, but they're your doctor and they're, they're help. They're diagnosing things, but they're not gaining from the roofing work itself. And, and they, they're your ally. They're your friend. And you should be, you should have an architect at your side over many, many years, and certainly for our national fund, which is our single biggest program, we really insist the congregations work sometimes with an engineer, but more likely an architect. So they have a big, big picture view, and they know what's most important. Uh, and because, you know, it can be overwhelming to look at your whole building and say, oh, my God, there's so many things. But an architect can say, sort through it all and say, here are the top three things you should do. And you don't need to raise two million. You just need to raise half a million, which is still daunting. But right. these are the things that you need to do first. And you know, um, that's stating the obvious for us here on this on this uh, call. But for a lot of churches, that is not obvious at no, all. No, it's it's They've not. And 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 for some reason, I run into this as well. And I think this is you're you're right. And just sort of underscoring your point here is that. I think sometimes people think like an architect is like, that's like a fancy thing you get when you have a big fancy project, like an architect. Oh my God. You know, and, um, or, well, we don't need that because we're not redesigning the space. Uh, so what, what could we possibly need? We're not building a new building. Um, and so sort of demystifying, and we've done a couple different, uh, preserve casts on demystifying different things. So demystifying architecture, we've done one on demystifying, uh, an owner's rep, um, somebody that when you get involved in a big project, somebody who's just sort of on your side overseeing everything and overseeing a host of different contractors if you have something of that scale. Um, but you're right. There's a lot to be gained from that. So you mentioned the National Fund. It, we probably should highlight that since it's such a big program and people may be interested. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, and um, that's it, that question is well-timed because we are at the moment now in the next few weeks when we're accepting letters of intent for the national fund. And so we should be sure to 
uh, let people know how to apply or how to look to see if your sacred place might be eligible. So it's the only national source of major capital grants for historic sacred places of, uh, you know, a wide range of denominations. Uh, we've been around now for like eight years or so. We're now into our third phase of work. Uh, what's exciting is now, on the one hand, there's enormous need. We've already said that. Uh, last year, we had 370 370 letters of intent, and we could only fund 15 to 20. Uh, so that's 5%. However, um, the grants are considerable, often $250,000. And now this year, we can actually provide some grants that are even larger than that. And the other good thing is, you know, this is another reason why I would encourage a congregation to think about it, is um, even if it's you're not quite a good fit this year, you might be a better fit next year. And we try to provide resources even if you're not brought into the fund right away. So, you know, we want to connect you to all the resources we have available. We encourage phone calls. We encourage conversations with our staff before or after applications. So, you know, it's another way. So, we, by the way, we send a resource packet to every congregation that applies, even if they're not brought into the fund. So we try to use this as an opportunity to spread um, our kind of impact, our touching uh, on congregations around the country. Um, and, but in the National Fund, it's about more than money. Uh, yes, the grants are considerable, but we believe it's important for every congregation to get a bundle of services. So we work, we have staff who are liaisons for each participating congregation. We have planning grants to help each congregation do good work. Speaking of working with architects, or if that plan is already in place to work with a good fundraising consultant or someone else to help them with their campaign. Um, we want to help each congregation stretch itself and raise funds, not just from their members, but from the larger community. This goes back to uh, one of our earlier themes, not doing it alone. Some data indicates that if a congregation tells its story to the larger community in a powerful way, it can raise a third or more of its capital funding from non-members. Hmm. And some data suggests it could be more than a half. Now, that's pretty powerful for a small congregation that worries, how do we raise this money? But at the, one of the fundamentals is a congregation has to articulate its value. It has to tell its story. It has to say to the community, yes, we have a great building, but it's more than that. You know, we serve right. kids. We serve seniors. We serve the homeless. Which gets back uh, to this conversation about use, exactly. right? Like, what are you going to do with it? Um, and yeah, some of the places that I've seen in Maryland that have done the best with rehabbing structures, I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about. They have a, 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 a multifaceted use that engages the community um, and embraces the community and also meets the community needs because each community is going to be different. Right. So some communities need space for yoga and some have 10 yoga studios and they don't need that. So they need something else. So it really is site specific. There's no one one size fits all formula that partners plugs in and, and spits something out and says, this is what you should be. It really you need to listen to your community. Exactly. And we, we've known churches that came in with certain assumptions. And there's a church that we work with here in Philadelphia. Um, a Methodist church, uh, and they almost closed. So I, I lived nearby, and I was involved in the conversations about how they how they could move forward. And they had this massive basement space, and they said, oh, well, you know, daycare. 
we need we need to put daycare down there. Well, they had no data at all, no information that that's really what was appropriate for that space. And uh, but they had they had good hearts, you know, they wanted to serve kids. But until they had the input of the neighborhood, until they had those conversations going to inform and guide their thinking on how they would use their space, they were kind of flailing around and working. And yes, a lot of daycare does happen in churches, by the way. In Philadelphia, I, I, at one point, the data suggested one third of all childcare happens in churches. Wow. But that doesn't mean it's the right thing for your building. Right. So yes, I think I think the light motif that you're you're establishing here is that the community has got to be a part of this, and it will lighten the load, and it will inform and guide investments and uses, and. That's why we often say a small church is not necessarily a dying church. A small church can survive, but it's got to do its work in tandem with its community. And it's got to tell its story. And it's got to be smart about how they make the most of their building. That might be a good place to take a quick pause, come back. And then I kind of want to talk about the future of this work um, in light of just the big challenges that, that are out there. Um, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. No machine yet contrived, or hereafter yet contrivable, will ever equal the fine machinery of human finger. The Campaign for Historic Trades, a national workforce development program of Preservation Maryland, in partnership with the National Park Service, is working to train the next generation of historic tradespeople, focusing on the skills needed to maintain, preserve, restore, rehabilitate, reconstruct, and deconstruct historic structures. To learn more, Find opportunities to get engaged and support the work. Visit historictrades.org. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and we're talking with Bob Yeager. We've been talking all about sacred places, um, and we've been talking about this work, about the different ways that they accomplish their work, the programs, the National Fund. Um, but, you know, Bob, there was, as I know you're well aware, because I think you guys were even mentioned in it, there was a big article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy um, just sort of about, like, what happens when churches stop functioning and, and what does that mean for communities and what does that mean for philanthropy is sort of, I think, the, the real take on that article, what it meant for services that are provided generally by religious institutions. But, I mean, you know, kind of baked into that article is this this sense that the 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 loss of, of congregations and sort of the, 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 um, uh, closing of congregate, closing down of churches is accelerating. And you guys probably, you know, the data far better than I do. I just know tangentially, um, that it's, uh, it's accelerating. We're seeing it everywhere. Um, so the, the, the need, I guess, is even bigger probably than it was 30, 40 years ago. Where, where does this work head where, where where are you guys seeing this work head not only over you know probably what your strategic plan covers the next you know five or so years but but what are you envisioning this looks like over the next 20 years do you have any sense or what kind of um capacity you're going to need to accomplish this work where is this all headed great question and and we call this phenomenon that you've kind of described is churches and synagogues in transition hmm really going for something from what they used to be in their heyday in the 50s and 60s to what something different. And that can mean closing, in which case we want to be involved in helping the selling congregation and the community think about preservation-minded uses. 
but it can be smaller things like, hey, man, you know, we're, we're, we're down to 30 people, 50 people, but we have this massive building and we've done some good things. You know, we have a program, we have a food program and we have AA groups, but our Sunday school wing, which has 10 classrooms, is completely empty now. Mm-hmm. No one there. You know, so for them, it may be saying, you know, we really need to be much more serious about what we do with our space and do something more ambitious. So maybe it's housing or maybe it's a major program serving kids and we give and we lease them the entire Sunday school wing. So it, so it can range from more robust shared space. It could mean sharing ownership with another entity. It could mean selling and leasing back a portion of your building to, you know, uh, if you work with the right kind of developer, that's been done. Or it could be selling altogether. So I think that idea of transitioning, and by the way, that term and that whole idea has rapidly risen in our field and related fields. Um, it, and really only about three or four years, only in the last handful of years. And there are people that are now talking every month about assets in transition, sacred places in transition. And we have a really good guide, by the way, that's available on our website on sacred places in transition that provides a lot of good guidance on this. So I think that's not to say, yes, churches will be closing. I mean, that's part of it. But but basically, things are shifting. And I think it's important for congregations to recognize that first. Mm-hmm. Often they do not, even because it's the decline has been kind of slow for 30 years now. But it's not just them. I think one thing we need to do is we need civic leadership to recognize this and be and 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 be proactive sometimes and not be afraid of it's a religious institution. Oh, we can't. You know, we're trying to say this is why we're having a convening of leaders mm-hmm. in April. We want government and philanthropy and all civic leaders to feel more comfortable dealing with these places, because these are obviously works of architecture of enormous importance, but they're also institutions that serve a public purpose. They They have a public value, right? And so, and and I don't, you know, we're at a point where we can't afford our mayors and city councils and community foundations to sit by and watch them close one by one. That's that's insane. That's a crazy, crazy way to go. And can you imagine if you kind of flipped it on its head, can you imagine a civic leader or a mayor or whatever um, just sort of sitting idly by as some other, you know, 15,000 square foot building just sat vacant and, you know, transitioned out and there was no plan for it. And they just said, well, you know, it's, you know, you wouldn't do that with anything else. And, you know, it's it's probably comes from a maybe a good place trying and, and um, find good intent here. It's, you know, there's this concern about the separation of church and state right. and not being right. involved in that. Um but that separation of church and state means that the state shouldn't endorse a religion. It doesn't mean right. uh, that uh, you should turn a blind eye when a giant structure starts falling onto sidewalks and there's no plan for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, we've we've done, we haven't touched on this yet, Nick, but we've done some research with the University of Pennsylvania on the economic value that churches bring to their communities. We call it the halo effect. So each one of, each one has a, in an urban setting, an average economic impact of $1.7 million, by the way. So we've looked at one by one their value. But one of the questions you asked about the future, one of the questions we're facing now is what happens if in a neighborhood or in a downtown, half of them are now closing? What is the larger cumulative impact on our quality of life? And um, so there was an interesting little book written by Tom Frank, who was uh, on our board years ago, uh, looking at North Adams, Massachusetts, 
which is an old industrial town. It's where Masmoka is. Um, but one by one, a number of the churches in da- right in downtown are now closed or reused or empty. Um, there are neighborhoods in Philadelphia, I suspect in Baltimore, uh, where a number, you know, uh, not just one or two, a critical mass have closed or will be closing right. or city they're vacant or are gone altogether, just gone. Um, and I don't think anybody knows. That's one of the questions we want to ask. This is going to get, ha- this is going to happen more and more. We need, as a society, we need to understand what is the cumulative impact on, you know, the way, the way the homeless are served, the way seniors are served, the way kids are served, what's the impact on our streetscapes. Um, you know, there's an economy these places represent because they hire people, they spend money, people come to these places and they spend money. That's all part of the halo effect. But, you know, maybe we can afford one or two to close, but can we afford six or eight to close in our neighborhood? That could be happening uh, in some of our neighborhoods. It, w- it actually will be happening in some of our neighborhoods. Uh, so we need to anticipate. We need to understand what the impact is. Yeah, and back to that civic side too. I, I feel like there also needs to be probably a, a reassessment of the tools that are available mm. to take um, to to address the physical needs of some of these places as well. You know, because back to that church and state conversation, a lot of grants and tax credits and things like that are not applicable or are very hard to deploy, um, right. and it we probably can't completely lean on the private and you know private sector and philanthropic dollars to make up that gap and that's i feel like at least i don't know where where you guys are in this but that at least needs to be part of the the exploration over the next several years is what are the tools that we're going to have at our disposal to take advantage to to address these needs you know because to to your point there there's an economic loss associated with um these these buildings and, and these congregations going vacant. And so how do we address them? Um, and the tools at our disposal, I'm not sure, are always perfectly equipped. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting questions I have is, you know, can we structure a way for the public sector to get more involved? I, I think it may be constitutionally difficult to have, say, a state-funded program that's specifically for sacred places. However, they're, they're, sacred places are part of a, a larger group of kind of public buildings that serve a d- neighborhood needs. Mm-hmm. And there are others, you know, library buildings or s- certain kinds of club buildings. Um, but the churches in a given neighborhood may be the majority of those kinds of places. So can right. it be broadened a bit so it can meet constitutional muster, but make some new kind of funding available? Because I think, yes, we can help congregations manage things differently. We can help them fundraise in new ways. But I also think we need new sources of funding. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So um, this has been just a fascinating conversation. We could have you back probably every month and talk about something different. For people who are listening who want to learn more, we'll put links in the show notes to all this. But um, you've you've mentioned a couple different reports. I feel like the transitioning one is one we want to highlight. if people are interested in the convenings that you're talking about or anything else that Partners is doing, what's the best way to engage with uh, your organization? I would say go to sacredplaces.org. Uh, all of the things we've talked about are there. Another report I think that we touched on quickly that I would encourage folks to look at is a report on the halo effect of sacred places. Because what it does is it really deepens and broadens the argument 
for their larger civic value. And that's kind of, I think, one of the themes we've been sounding is that, yes, of course, these are places for worship and for the life of those congregations, but they have a larger civic value. And I think we need to be comfortable with that language. And so that HALO report gives a lot of data um, to articulate the economic impact and the community impact that these places have. Um, and, and, and yes, one of our goals is to bring people together to say, what are some creative new approaches that we could consider? Um, because we know that something major is at risk here. Um, and it's affecting every community, urban, suburban, rural, you know, it's everywhere. So getting involved. So we welcome folks to get involved, to look at our website, to send us an email, give us a phone call. We need to broaden the circle of people who want to be helpful. Well, I think that's kind of a perfect place to end the conversation. You have an open invitation anytime you want to come back and talk about anything that uh, the organization is doing. We'd love to have you here um, and look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.